CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We're going to spend some time this morning uh, talking about the standoff, the current standoff, over raising the debt ceiling um, and the consequences of what could happen if, in fact, uh, the Republican-controlled House particularly and the White House don't reach a compromise on how to move forward. Um, If you're like me and not particularly well-versed in fiscal matters, in budgets, um, I sort of had to refresh some of my understanding of what this is all about. And I'll just share a couple points with you very briefly before I introduce uh, the panel. Um, Remember that what we're talking about when we talk about the debt ceiling is not um, new new spending on new budget matters. What we're talking about here is money that's already been budgeted that needs to be paid for. Um, So right now, the current debt is just about $31 trillion. The debt ceiling establishes how much money uh, the, the, uh, the Treasury can borrow to pay off the current debt. And the borrowing cap right now is $31.3 trillion. So as you can see, we're getting very close to the point, uh, Janet Yellen says, June 1st is the likely date, when uh, the country no longer will uh, be able to pay off debts uh, because the debt ceiling is going to um, uh, prevent any further borrowing to pay off those debts. This is an issue that has been going on in this country for decades. The whole question of the uh, uh, American economy being in debt dates all the way back to the Revolutionary War. And so with the panel today, I want to dig into a lot of that, put it all in perspective as we move forward. So let me start by introducing my Thursday partner from the AJC, editor-at-large, Kevin Riley. Kevin, thank you for being here today. Bill, I'm glad to be here, but mostly I'm glad we're on today with three really great political scientists because um, we're going to have to count on them to make us sound uh, really smart today, as they always do. Yeah, I'm glad we have them, too. One of them is Tammy Greer, uh, one of our favorite political scientists. Tammy, thank you for being here today. Thank you. And who doesn't love a conversation about the debt ceiling? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Charles Bullock. Uh, the dean of political science uh, professors in the state of Georgia and actually beyond uh, is uh, back with us. Chuck, we're always happy to have you join us from your home out at the University of Georgia. Thanks for being here. Thanks for the invitation. Always look forward to joining your intelligent panels. And we have one of your colleagues, uh, Professor Audrey Haynes, political science professor as well at the University of Georgia and the director of the Applied Politics Program, which prepares students for careers in politics. I wonder how many of your applied politics students uh, go on to get involved in uh, issues around the Treasury and economic matters as opposed to working, say, on Capitol Hill in other kinds of capacities, Audrey? 
Well, I will tell you that they go into all kinds of areas right now. We have um, one of my favorite students is actually someone who is a staffer on um, the Senate side and appropriations who's been working on budget issues for a long time. We've got students in the White House. We've got students who work at the Treasury. One of them um, worked at the Treasury not too long ago uh, in the comms office. So we have them everywhere. Well, thank you very much for uh, being here today. Uh, Kevin, let's just talk first about what uh, many economists predict are the potential um, outcomes of a failure to raise the debt ceiling by June 1st, uh, throwing the country into default. Um, We could see as many as 60 million people on Social Security having delays in their checks. Medicare recipients would not be reimbursed or the doctors that they go to would not be reimbursed. Uh, People would not get food stamps. Tax refunds uh, would be delayed. Um, There's no agreement yet on how you'd uh, pay uh, military and federal workers if um, the debt ceiling isn't increased. Moody's predicts that stocks will plummet as much as a fifth and that the and people out in the economy, like all of us, could lose as much as ten trillion dollars in investment. So, Kevin, uh, we're talking about what some economists are saying is a chaotic doomsday scenario. Yeah, and of course, it's important to note that since this has never actually happened, all of these predictions are are the best guesses that people can make but i do think it's 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 worthwhile to consider a couple things right the first is if the markets hate anything they hate uncertainty right and that's what this is creating uh no matter how long this goes on and um exactly what anyone's political point of view on it is it creates uncertainty and then if you really go back to um when it when it got this bad before uh during 2011 you know, the stock market, I think, fell by almost 15%. And if that were to happen, I mean, that would be, you know, devastating. And to average people with their 401ks and other things that they uh, that they look at, I think it would, you know, those kind of things tend to build on each other, right? If I'm worried about my savings or my 401k, I quit spending, I worry, and then the economy just, you know, it feeds on itself. So there's nothing good about this at all. Chuck Bullock, um, you know, we, we, the, the um, predictions for what possible outcomes uh, we could see are so apocalyptic that I think it's important to uh, uh, keep in mind what Kevin just said. We don't really know what might happen, but it, it is clear that there are going to be severe consequences if some kind of arrangement isn't made by around June 1st. Right, Chuck? Well, that's right, yeah. And the problem, in part, is that we have an awful lot of new members of Congress, people who weren't there the last time that we tiptoed up to the edge and when we saw Moody's reduce the bond rating for American bonds. So these are new folks, and a lot of them are very ideological. And for them, uh, compromise is a dirty word. So they're going to look at this through their, their eyes, and they're going to see you know, there is a right thing to do from their perspective, and that right thing to do is to hold out until there are substantial cuts uh, being made in funding, which has already been approved. 
So it's going to be hard to bring those people around, even by issuing the warnings, which are so pervasive. Um, and let's, Tammy, let's go back to what Chuck just said there. Again, this is not about new spending. This is about raising the debt ceiling to pay for uh, uh, costs already incurred in budgets that the Congress has passed and that the White House has signed. Right. And I, I think, Bill, that that's the part that is really missing in the conversation. So it drives those that are not political watchers all the time to a, a point of confusion um, that this um, discussion about the debt ceiling is about current um, bills and current um, policies. It is not. It is about items that have been passed uh, years before, and it's just catching up to when these items are paid. I think it's also important, you know, to have to to be clear that the Moody's bond rating is just like our credit score. And so to have our bond rating to be uh, reduced is, in essence, having our credit score to be reduced, which means that our interest rates increase on the monies that we've already borrowed, which means that the taxpayers are paying more money um, uh, in, in, for all the services that we use. So I, I think it's um, it's a linear conversation when it's really a holistic issue, um, and it creates confusion to uh, to those everyday Americans who 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 aren't seeped into these matters as we are, and it's unfair and it creates fear, um, and such that we um, go to our boxes and continue to um, elect people who have who stoke those fears. So Audrey. Um... The Republican-controlled House has already passed a bill that uh, creates conditions uh, that they say uh, must be met uh, before they agree to raise the debt ceiling. And and the problem with their bill, and we'll talk about what's in that bill, some of the things they want cut, but the problem is, again, there, there are, are many people who say, look, you've got to separate and this goes on historically, every time there's been an argument over the debt ceiling. But dealing with the budget, creating a budget is a separate matter from increasing the debt ceiling to pay for bills already due. But that's not what the House is doing. The House is essentially saying, we want certain cuts made now as part of the budget before we agree to the debt ceiling increase. Yes? And that is true. And I'm going to um, provide a little context because at this moment, you know, as we talk about it, um, you know, it looks like the GOP is trying to do something and utilize a crisis to pass their preferences in terms of legislation. But if you look at his history, um, this is something that happens all the time. Republicans and Democrats have done it, and there are really only two levers that you can use to have an impact on the budget, and that is either to increase taxes or to um, cut spending. And in the past, uh, Democrats have used this as an opportunity to try and generate taxes, uh, increase taxes, and that is a part of um, uh, the budget bill uh, that... Uh, Biden has put out for fiscal year 2024. Um, but this has happened many times. I do want to say that historically, one of the reasons we have a debt ceiling, by the way, is because 
Um, they introduced a debt ceiling in 1917 because Wilson wanted to get into World War One, and a lot of people were against that because they were worried about the spending. The debt ceiling was actually introduced as a way to say, look, we're not going to just spend forever. We're going to limit this spending. So, you know, that is an, a sort of an irony that the debt ceiling is there to help control the actual spending. Well, let me, Kevin, I want to bring you in, but let me just expand on what Audrey said, because I think it's an important part of the history of all this. Prior to World War I, Every time the country really wanted to spend more money on a particular budget item, it had to be approved by Congress. It had to go through the process of getting winning approval. Um, when World War I was looming, um, it, it was decided that, that you couldn't continue that. We knew that massive amounts of money were going to have to be spent. So approval basically was based on set a debt ceiling um, beyond which you cannot spend <laughs> any more money. Uh, but you give the uh, you give uh, uh, the administration, uh, you give the Treasury Department the right to spend up to that limit. And as you say, that didn't happen until 1917. Kevin? Yeah, I want to go back to something that uh, Tammy said, because she when she talked about like our personal credit scores, she she made this a very. A much more understandable thing because to me you know to me it's sort of like this and i would i was going to ask the panel if, if they want to challenge my metaphor here let's imagine that we agree with our spouse to remodel our kitchen something near and dear to your heart though i know and so you're going along with the project and you're making payments on the project and then you get the final bill and You've either had a couple of your car broke down, you had other financial problems, and you just announce, I'm not going to pay that bill. I, I'm, just, I'm just not going to pay it because I'm concerned about how much we're spending in our household. And this, I'm just not going to pay. Well, in the real world that all of us live in, we don't get to do that. I mean, if we owe money, we have to pay for it. And if we get a service or a product, we have to pay for it. We don't get to have a tantrum over the family spending and refuse to pay our bills. And to me, that's what's going on. That seems crazy. Yeah, what, what we're looking for analogies, let me try another one. And that would be uh, in a rational world. And what we do this, all of us kind of one time or another, we might say, well, I want to weigh a certain amount. And so you go on a diet and you work towards that goal. Okay, what we're doing here at the national level is, yeah, we set these diets, but then we just gorge, you know, for, for months or even years. And then one point we say, oh, my gosh, we got all this extra weight. What are we going to do? Somehow we have to just literally cut it off, you know. We're not going to – we went rational and avoided it. We took it on, and now in order to get rid of it, we've got to cut. Audrey? Well, I, I think that's a good analogy. And a lot of people are very critical of the budget process that we have in the U.S. right now. I mean, we, we generate something called a budget resolution, and it's supposed to constrain spending, but very often it doesn't. And let me give you some statistics. Um, in terms of our, of our debt, in the 1980s, when Ronald Reagan was president, it tripled from one to three trillion in the 1990s it doubled from 3 to 6 trillion and in 2000 it doubled to 12 trillion and now we know you know 
it's pretty high again. So, you know, what's driving this? And, and, and let me just tell your audience a little bit about some of those trends. One, in the 1980s, we had tremendous tax cuts. There has been a, a tendency, both from Democrats and Republicans, not to want to issue taxes. When Democrats talk about taxes today, who do they want to tax? Not everybody, certainly. They want to tax people who make lots and lots of money. And even they have difficulty doing that. There are a lot of loopholes about things that can't be taxed. A couple of other things. We've had wars. Wars are really expensive. We had a really long war. And a lot of people, if you look at the statistics, you'll see that when Obama came in, there was this upward trend. And that's because everything that happened in terms of the war in Iraq and Afghanistan had basically been done off the books, you know, with um, sort of emergency spending and different ways to spend it without including it in the budget. So you had a big chunk that went up there. And it, and at that point, it has just gone up. War, recession, people forget about 2008, the Great Recession. And even recently, what's driving this is we haven't had a great um, influx of taxes. Sometimes the, the taxes that come in in a better economy sort of make the debt ceiling problem uh, less problematic. You get sort of saved by that, that rush of money. Um, but that's not happening right now. So when people look at this, they need to take off their partisan blinders and realize that this is a problem that has been generated systematically and it needs a real sustainable solution. Chuck's analogy is a really good one. Um, so on, on the part of Republicans who really are concerned about spending, they should be. Democrats should be as well. And they and many of them are. Mark Warren, remember... Um, was it Mark? I can't remember. Um, I think that was him. They, they've been working on this issue for a Mark long Warner, time. Yeah, 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 yeah Warren. And, um, and it hasn't gone away. And part of it is because of this bluster that we get. And it's like, um, if you go to the House website, they talk about Biden's irresponsible budget. But the irresponsibility lies with all of them at this point in time. Um T Tammy, I think Audrey just laid that out for us so well. No one would argue that spending and our debt have gotten out of control. I mean, the fact that we are now in, in a situation where we have some $31 trillion in debt, um, and as Audrey described, how it increased over just a matter of decades, it's important to point out this is not about whether there has to be constraints in future spending. This is about paying for what we've already agreed to buy, so so to speak. But what's interesting about this, Tammy, is to remember, um, if you look up the figures on this, since 1960 alone, as we pointed out, the debt ceiling was passed in 1917. Um, but since 1960 alone, um, Congress has raised or revised the debt limit 78 times, 49 times under Republicans, 29 times under Democratic administrations, Tammy. Right. Uh, and and uh, to like add on to the other educators, you know, work here. Um, I, when I teach um, finances for government, I tell my students that there are three categories, a must have, a nice to have, and an oops. Um, in the budget process, you can plan for the oops as much as you can. However, 
when the states have their their state constitution where they they must have a balanced budget or else you know lawmakers have violated their state constitution and the US constitution doesn't have such then it is the federal it is the federal government who takes on the debt um, and helps the state. So when there are wildfires, hurricanes, tornadoes, and all of this, um, the federal government comes in to help. So to budget for an oops is is really um, you know not a thing because who can foresee the future? Um, and and that's something that we don't take in consideration. I always find it utterly fascinating that Republicans holler about the debt ceiling when there is a Democratic president. However, when there is a Republican president, we don't hear so much of um, Republicans talking about the debt ceiling and, um, you know, bills for 49 times Republican presidents have signed um, uh, you know, to increase the debt ceiling, whereas it's 29 times for a Democratic president. So it seems to go back to um, your previous show this week about immigration. The debt ceiling appears to be a political issue at the time um, versus it being um, an issue where there is to Chuck's point, um, a compromise where lawmakers are actually working together to solve the issue. It's just one of those um, partisan items to rev up their base. So Kevin, uh, thank you for that, Tammy. Kevin, uh, let's just look at a couple of things that are in the House measure, uh, what they're demanding in exchange for uh, uh, an agreement to raise the debt ceiling. Just to make the point that, that Tammy is talking about, the politics of this, one of the things in the House bill is that Republicans want to rescind the $71 billion that Congress uh, approved uh, at Joe Biden's in, as, as part of the uh, uh, last COVID relief package for the IRS to upgrade its technology and boost hiring. Um, Republicans have seized upon that as a political issue, saying that's all about an effort uh, to uh, use the IRS as a police force to go after uh, people whose uh, tax payments may or may not be uh, questionable. You know, so this is something that was in all the ads from uh, Republicans last year, an army of IRS agents out there harassing Americans. So that's $71 billion that Republicans say they want taken away from IRS. What's interesting about that particular item is that the Congressional Budget Office says that if you do take away all that money from staffing up IRS in the long run, because you're not going to collect as much tax as you might have before, it's going to cost over $120 billion in lost revenue. So, But that's just one, Kevin, example of how this effort to uh, negotiate over the debt ceiling becomes just highly partisan and political. Yeah, and it's it is it's it's ideological, and uh, one of the things the Republicans don't really want to visit with is the massive tax cuts that have happened that in the end contributed to it, and how the trickle down of tax cuts has never actually worked the way that was promised. But and I know we're talking about billions of dollars, right? So um, you know it's kind of crazy to throw those numbers around, but that that attacking the IRS at that amount. 
I mean, let's go back to your kitchen. That's like, okay, well, we're going to have one less drawer in the new kitchen. That would be about like that. That's not enough money to make a difference. I mean, the fundamentals, as Audrey pointed out, of the budgeting process have to change because most of the money the federal government spends is money it has to spend, and its discretionary spending is limited. And so that's what really makes this largely a political ploy. And it just goes all the way back to a conservative philosophy, which is if you want to limit government, starve it. And, and, and I think that that is a, I wouldn't say uh, a, a, you know, in those, using those words, a legitimate view, but there is a view that says if you want to have smaller government, then you would fund it less. But the way that we do it is to these ham-handed crisis-driven efforts, which really don't result in fundamental change or understanding of that change or different operations in government. All right, um, Chuck, let me give you a last word before we take a break, and we'll come back with more on this. But go ahead, please. Yeah, well, we actually have a model of what would work. Uh, and we go back to the early 1990s. There was the Budget Enforcement Act of 1990, and then very early in the Clinton administration, more budgetary steps. And what was done essentially was to freeze federal spending. You had to, word was pay go. So if you have a new idea, you had to figure out some place where you could take it from the existing budget and shift money over into that rather than just saying, we're just going to add it on. You had then what are called firewalls so that you weren't taking money, say, from defense to put into social programs. So you had to move money around within three different pots, as it were. And it worked. It took a few years. But again, if you remember, the one of the big issues in that 2000 presidential election was what were you going to do with this sur surplus that we had at that point? And, uh, yeah. Al Gore said, I'm going to put it in a lockbox in order to protect uh, Social Security yeah. and uh, Medicare. Yeah. So there is a way to, to get us out of the situation where you kind of bring federal spending under control. But it requires, again, that you take some hard steps. There were some tax increases. And again, you know, George W.H. Bush paid a price for that. You know, he had promised him when he ran in 1988, Watch my lips, no new taxes. Well, in order to work out that Budget Reform Act in 1990, he had to agree to some new taxes. So it did bring in some revenue, but also simultaneously, you cut spending. So back to what Audrey said, yeah, there are only two ways you get control of a budget. You either raise taxes and or you cut spending. And we saw how about 30 years ago, the nation as a whole, Congress working with the president, did that, and it worked. Chuck, as we go to break, I've got to say, I love the fact that you brought up two um, uh, uh, now historical items that relate to the budget. One, George H.W. Bush, read my lips, no new taxes. And of course, as you point out, he was forced to raise taxes. He never really recovered uh, from that uh, uh, change. And then Al Gore and his lockbox was mocked widely uh, for suggesting that. It became almost a joke on the campaign trail when, in fact, Chuck, um, it was a reasonable, at, at least it it seemed perhaps to be an idea well worth considering. And we're now looking again at deadlines when we're being told we may not have the money to pay Social Security beneficiaries and to cover Medicare. So it was, yeah, you're right, it was mocked. But had we done that you know, 20, 25 years ago, we might not be in some of the situation we are today. 
All right. Well, we're in a highly partisan situation, obviously, on Capitol Hill and across the country right now. And that's contributing to the crisis that we is looming in terms of the debt ceiling. And I want to talk about that much more specifically after we come back uh, from this break. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Audrey Haynes, Kevin Riley, Chuck Bullock, and Tammy Greer join us for today's Political Rewind. We're talking about the looming uh, debt ceiling uh, crisis. Um, Just a couple other things in that uh, House bill, which will lead us into our conversation about how partisan politics are playing a huge role in all this. Um, Republicans passed a bill which has no chance of getting anywhere in the Senate. Clearly, nevertheless, it expresses their political feelings uh, of the moment. Uh, One of the things they're demanding is that um, President Biden's efforts to waive ten to twenty thousand dollars in debt relief for student loans needs to be uh, thrown out? They're going after what uh, the president was able to put into his uh, 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 COVID relief package: uh, uh, tax breaks for renewables for the production and consumption of clean energy, and in fact, they uh, want to, in fact, uh, add. Uh, measures that would boost fossil fuel uh, production and usage. Um, And then on top of all that, uh, that Republican bill also would establish work requirements for recipients of of welfare and food assistance. So, Kevin Riley, we see quite clearly the footprint of highly partisan politics. And we should say this was the bill that— Kevin McCarthy had to negotiate with the people that Chuck Bullock talked about earlier in the show, the extreme right wing of the party, newer members of Congress who are demanding action on what are essentially uh, issues that um, are, are, are uh, playing to the base alone. Right. I, you know, there is a lot of argument about which side is playing this political game better. And I would say that McCarthy passing this bill and being able to get those issues out there and get people like us to talk about them is a strategy that has worked out for him because he wants the conversation to be about those things. And there are plenty of people who are against the student loan relief. There are plenty of people who are for work requirements and all of that. And as we just talked about in the first segment, that really isn't the issue here. But he has been able to make that the issue by like two votes in the House, right? And so now I think it remains to be seen, how will the Biden administration play this politically? Because there are a lot of people now who think they have misplayed it, that they should have never really negotiated, that they've given McCarthy a platform, and that there are a lot of Americans who will listen to what McCarthy has to say and say, yeah, you know, I'm I kind of I'm not sure I agree with all that student loan relief under these circumstances. So let's see how it plays politically. But right now, it's hard to argue McCarthy hasn't done things that benefit him and his party. 
Chuck and then Tammy, let me add to that. Um, for for a good deal of time, uh, the White House, uh, President Biden was saying, I'm not negotiating on this. The debt ceiling has to be raised, period. Um, but he has been under a lot of heat because he's now agreed. He's met with Kevin McCarthy. He's uh, shortening his uh, overseas trip to come back and continue being engaged personally in these negotiations. And as Kevin Riley points out, um, there are many Democrats who criticize him for being willing to uh, uh, legitimize some of what Kevin McCarthy is uh, talking about. Yeah, part of our problem right now, and this uh, op- Congress operates, the Republicans really operate under a thing called the Hastert Rule, and that goes back to former Speaker Denny Hastert, who said he would not bring anything to the floor unless the Republican conference was behind it. Now, what this does, it takes away the possibility of what we used to see, and we're talking about going back a generation or so now, which was bipartisanship, so that you could carve out a successful path by bringing together the middle parts of both Democrats and Republicans. And uh, I believe passing uh, one of those debt relief, uh, debt raising issues back about 10 years ago, that's exactly what uh, John Boehner, who was the Republican speaker at that point, had to do and went against the Hastert rule to do it. Uh, McCarthy, as we know, know, has such a narrow majority. It took him so long. He had to make so many promises to become speaker. He doesn't have that kind of latitude even that Boehner had and certainly can't operate as speakers would have back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s where they could say, yeah, okay, we can carve out something here which we can get you know, a bipartisan. It might even be a situation where now it would be mainly Democratic votes with some Republican votes added to it. But that kind of issue won't even come up for a vote. He cannot make it to the floor under the current operating rules of the Republican Party. Tammy? Right. And Sure. And to, to Chuck's point, you know, that the Hastert rule is not something that is set in stone. It is to create partisanship, um, which will not allow for us to move forward as a country um, and, you know, staking issues in the ground to keep us separated from each other rather than working together as Congress is intended to do under the Constitution and <laughs> being bicameral. Um as far as the president getting flack from the Democratic Party, you know, this is what leadership looks like. So regardless of, you know, how your party may fare on something, if it's the right thing to do, it's the right thing to do. And and if the if President Biden did the thing that um, that Kevin McCarthy is doing, then it's, it's, it's the same. You're you're putting a line in the sand and you are not allowing for. Uh, for both entities to work together across lines. I also want to add one other point, Bill, to the conversation about the national debt, that the debt um, and having some of our debt to be owned by other countries increases um, diplomacy when it comes to foreign policy. Because if we're able to work together um, as a as a as different countries around the world, then we avoid the the notion of going to war with one another. Um, because then you won't get your money back um, from the people that owe you money, other countries. So it, it does more than the conversations that we talk about. It increases foreign diplomacy. Um, it also adds to um, you know to trade. So jobs. It adds more to the conversation than the linearness that sometimes uh, partisans uh, create when it comes to the the national debt. 
Um, I would jump in there and add to to um, Tammy's remarks. Well, you know, the, we talk about this as debt and the debt ceiling, but the way that Americans really need to think about it as this is the public debt. It belongs to all of us. And the consequences of carrying this debt will affect all of us. So I just want to um, to say one, one other thing is right now, in terms of the the differences between like the, the budget that Biden has proposed, and this relates um, a little a bit to the debt ceiling and what the Republicans want, there's not a huge gap in there. It's like, Three trillion versus five trillion, you know, in savings. And if you look at what Biden has proposed in his um, in in his uh, budget, he wants to reverse the 2017 tax cuts. Um, he wants to add some new taxes on those making a hundred hundred billion dollars or more, or something like that. Uh, close the carried interest loophole. Um, auction off the rights to the radio spectrum, uh, target um, some areas where uh, we've been losing money, allow the IRS again to continue to collect this money. And on the on the Republican side, you know, they have some things like recall the COVID uh, excess cash. You know, a lot of companies took advantage of that that money when they didn't need to, and there's a lot of it floating around, and a lot of it is going to red states, and they're using it for things that maybe they shouldn't be using it for, So um, and blue states too. So, you know, we need to encourage our own members of the House and Senate. I mean, you, we need to actually bypass some of their, um, you know, penchant to to make this a partisan issue and think about it more responsibly ultimately it it will lie with us i think to do that all right um before we conclude this conversation because i do want to move on to a couple of other i think interesting uh political uh issues um chuck bullock uh we don't know whether the, the uh republicans in the house and biden are mm -hmm. going to be able to make a deal by june 1st and that's why some Democrats are now urging President Biden to take an unprecedented step, which is to invoke the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which some believe gives the president unilateral ability to raise the debt ceiling itself. Because the 14th Amendment was passed after the uh, Civil War, right after the Civil War. And here's what it says specifically. The validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment of pensions and bounties for services in suppressing insurrection or rebellion, shall not be questioned. It's the addition of that language, debt incurred to suppress insurrection or rebellion, which make it questionable as to whether or not the courts would allow Biden to stop doing this. Well, I think also what we'd find if we'd probed into this is that the part of the reason for this was to make it clear that the debt of the United States was to be honored. The debt of the Confederacy was not to be honored. So yeah. it was part yeah. of doing that. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if the president were to do that, uh, if the courts were to uphold it, yeah, this would be yet further accretion of power in the hands of the president. Many people worry that... Uh, the Congress has, has become too too weak an instrument already. Now, certainly the partisanship we've already talked about here would lead some people to think maybe, maybe those people shouldn't have that kind of influence. But it would be 
you know, an unprecedented step. And if it were given to Biden to use at this point, even those who support it would probably find it uh, difficult to support if, say, it were exercised by someone like Donald Trump on the Republican side. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, listen, first, thank you all for a wonderful conversation about the debt and what we're headed for in the weeks ahead. I do want to turn to a couple of other issues, including the fact we now know Donald Trump is heading to Georgia next month to make a campaign appearance at a big Republican gathering that's already uh, created controversy itself. We'll talk about that after these messages. Kevin Riley, uh, we now learned have learned uh, in the AJC that uh, Donald Trump is going to be uh, featured at the state Republican convention, which takes place next month. We'll talk in a couple of minutes about why that event is already uh, uh, causing uh, controversy among many Republicans. But before we do that, let's just point out that Trump will be here Uh, Shortly after the release of a poll from our friend Mark Roundtree at Landmark Communications, Landmark is a Republican consulting firm, but his um, polling arm is separate. And um, in fact, we've found over the years that uh, Landmark does a pretty good job of uh, uh, massaging numbers and predicting outcomes of elections. And uh, the poll they released yesterday among Georgia Republicans, Trump sits at 40%. Ron DeSantis, who's expected to announce his candidacy sometime in the week ahead, is at 32%, which, by the way, is closer than many other polls across the country show those two. Um, But uh, uh, it it does show Trump with a lead as he uh, heads to Georgia to continue his campaign. Yeah, and the uh, we have no reason to to question the polling for sure because Landmark, I think, you know, we all recognize has been pretty consistent and delivers uh, news that people don't like as often as they delivers news people do like. So um, I, I do think it's it's interesting though. In the end, it's forty percent among likely Republican voters, so he doesn't even really have um, half of the Republicans. But let's be honest. The primary process is in largely in favor of Donald Trump, the way it's set up now. If he can go to every state and get 40% while others divide the rest of it, he will he will win primaries and ultimately get to the nomination. I mean, if these numbers are, are held up in Georgia, and if they are similar in other states, then he's going to end up as the nominee. It's really not complicated. Uh, Tammy, one of the numbers that jumps out at me on this poll, and I'll start with you on this, is um, we're still a good 10 months away from a Georgia presidential primary, which won't take place until uh, March of 2024. And yet, uh, the landmark poll suggests only 6% of Republican voters are undecided. That's relatively unheard of this far ahead of a primary, the um, other factor, though, to take into consideration is the entire Republican field hasn't developed yet. So right now, it's possible that Trump is benefiting from all those people out there who say, yeah, we're going to give our vote to them. But undecideds could grow as a DeSantis, 
and uh, Mike Pence and others think about jumping into the race, yes? Yes, at the same time, Bill, um, I would like for us to take a journey back to 2016 when there were 16 individuals in the Republican primary and our well-known individuals included Jeb Bush, who was um, <coughs> widely thought of in early polling to, to be the sure win for the a Republican nomination. You had Mitt Romney, you had Chris Christie, you had Mike Huckabee, you had Rick Perry. Um, and all of those Republicans, um, Bush, Romney, Christie, Huckabee, and Perry were successful um, governors of their states. They were effective in whatever policies that they had, particularly those that were supported by the Republican Party and Republican voters. And they were well ahead of the 45th president, who then became president in 2016. So while I can appreciate the polling and the interest um, in um, the, 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 the Republican primary, I would caution us to, to think back a, a few years ago when well-known individuals in the Republican Party who held elected office, who were successful in their own right, were you know, demolished by the individual that became the 45th president. Audrey, um, this also points out this uh, split in the Republican Party. It exacerbates the tension between the Kemp wing of the Republican Party and the uh, MAGA wing, the Trump wing, because as we know, Brian Kemp will not be at the state Republican convention. He set up an apparatus to raise money with his super PAC separate from the state Republican uh, Party. So this is just another sign of the fact that the Republican Party in this state right now has got two masters, on one hand, Brian Kemp, on the other, Donald Trump. Right. So, you know, as someone who studied presidential nomination campaigns basically my entire adult life, one of the things that um, we have learned is that, you know, there, there's a division, but I've always thought that campaigns matter. <laughs> and right now, if you think about how bifurcated our um, consumption of media is, if you think about where most of the people who are active Republicans who are, you know, somewhat paying attention to the news, they're watching Fox, they're reading their news from generally partisan sources. And one of the things is that Trump has stayed in the news. He has high name recognition. You know, that sort of reinforces people who really like him, but he's still there. And if you're not paying attention, he's still he's still relevant because he gets so much airplay. DeSantis has been that other person, too, who has really been championed by sort of the anti-Trumpers. But all the things that he's been doing in Florida you know, some of them they like, but some of them they feel like perhaps that's a bit too radical. And again, sort of the Kemp wing that is pro-business, they don't like some of the things that he's done with Disney, for example. So I think that there's quite a bit of uncertainty, and we really are going to have to see, there's a couple factors. One, how does DeSantis perform in a national audience? Everybody who knows DeSantis knows that, you know, he can come off goofy or, you know, um, you know, a, a bit introverted. He he says and does weird things. And, and obviously, if you've been watching any of the ads, there's plenty of crazy visuals of him making goofy faces. Um, and we all watch the pudding commercial. So Trump has lots of stuff. And Trump, who knows? Who knows 
what's going to happen with Trump? Um, you know, will he be the Teflon person like, you know, or, or Reagan? He's been pretty, you know, Teflon-y so far, but I think there's uncertainty. So we're going to have to wait and see. Chuck? Yeah, I want to look at this poll, which is interesting in that it shows a closer race than virtually any poll I've seen any place else in the country. So what does this tell us? Does it tell us that Georgia is an anomaly or that Georgia is a cutting edge of what may be erosion in Trump support? Uh, looks like to me at least we're anomalous, and this has shown up in two ways in our recent history. One has been the success of people like Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger, who succeeded against Trump's nominees. And it looked like to me what was happening in that Republican primary of 2022 was that voters were saying, yes, yes, they like uh, Donald Trump, but uh, they'd like to see him renominated, but they have new and better information in terms of what these Georgians have done, and therefore they're willing to vote for those Georgians. And then the other level, and this would be at the mass level rather than the elite level, and that is that at least here in Georgia, and I think, again, we would see this in a number of other states, Arizona, Nevada, whatever, is that um, you have a share of the Republican vote who simply will not go as far as to vote for Donald Trump. So what happens here in Georgia is that if you're a Democrat and you're running against Trump or someone very closely aligned with him, you as a Democrat have a pretty good shot. But if you're running against a Republican who has built some distance between himself and Trump, then that Republican's going to win. I, you know, that's fascinating. And and Kevin, um, we're running out of time. But one one thing that supports what uh, Chuck Bullock is talking about are looking at the approval ratings that we see in the landmark poll. Um, Brian Kemp uh, has over seven, well over seventy percent approval among Republicans who responded to this poll. Donald Trump has only fifty six percent. This, and 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 that's a fascinating indicator of some sort as well. Yeah, I, I don't know. I kind of come back to. I mean, Kemp is by far the most powerful and most popular Republican in the state. But I don't know. To me, this poll might say, "Hey, voters like him as governor, and they want him to worry about being governor and do what the governor should do." They may not want him to run for president. And, you know, I think anyone, any typical voter, any typical person likes a person who does the job they have. Yeah, well, let me we, we are running out of time, but let, let's add the fact that uh, Landmark did put Brian Kemp into the mix for president and he only got seven percent of the respondents. But, of course, he hasn't launched a campaign. There are a lot of people who don't think he's really running anyhow. And on the show yesterday, Cody Hall, one of his top advisors, made it clear to Greg Bluestein and me that uh, although it was potentially a possibility, it wasn't likely that was the direction he was uh, going to head. So, uh, uh, but, but it is interesting that at this point, very few Georgians seem to see him as the guy they turn to unless he launches a real campaign. We are completely out of time for today's show. I mentioned in the headlines to the show, I wanted to get into uh, the latest in the Atlanta Police Training Center because our conversation about the debt was so interesting. I wanted to keep that alive. So I'm going to defer that to tomorrow. There have been some interesting developments in the Police Training Center story, and we'll get to that tomorrow when um, uh, Michael Thurman and Sam Olins and Jim Galloway uh, will be with us for that conversation. In the meantime, I'm really delighted with uh, what we talked about today. Audrey Haynes, thank you so much for being here. 
Charles Bullock, Tammy Greer, Kevin Riley. What a great conversation on today's show. Um, before we leave, I haven't done this enough lately. I want to thank Natalie Mendenhall, Chase McGee, Victoria Evans Cash, and Everett Lamb, or Buddha, our newest member of the Political Rewind team for all they do to make this show a success as often as we do find that we can make it a success. We'll be back again with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nigat. Take care, stay healthy, and please be good to one another. Bye, everybody.